I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I have waited for today's conversation since the minute today's guest agreed to come and be part of Slow Mo. I have a keen interest in Stoicism, and today's guest is one of the world's top most authorities on the topic. Donald Robertson is a writer, a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and a trainer. He is a specialist in teaching evidence-based psychological skills and a known expert in the relationship between modern psychotherapy and the classical Greek and Roman philosophy. And you'll be amazed at how much modern psychotherapy can learn from those ancient philosophies. His therapy practice has specialized for many years and helped thousands of clients that suffered from social anxiety and self-confidence issues. He's also the author of six books and many articles on philosophy, psychotherapy, and psychological skill training. I will focus today mainly on his latest book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, which was a number one bestseller in philosophy. While I wait for Donald to join me, let me tell you about something that I think you would enjoy doing tonight. Remember that old movie, Groundhog Day? I watched that a couple of days ago and it really, really left me with a very positive message. You know how so many of us are under stress as we fear or have already been going through the second lockdown. And in that movie, which is sweet and light, there's some very eye-opening moment where the only time where his life truly changes to the better is that moment when he accepted his life as it is. I won't spoil it for you. It's a tip from me. Go and enjoy watching Groundhog Day. Donald, thank you for joining me. It's such a timely topic, as our listeners will find today. In times of anxiety, I think a lot of people are really, really feeling stressed recently, especially with all of the talks of the second lockdown and the second wave and all of the uncertainty. And I... I think we'll have a wonderful conversation. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure and I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Absolutely. So I, I'll start with a topic that I know is a topic on both of our minds, you and I. Last week, I posted something on Facebook that basically said, while there is anxiety in the air and a little bit of tension, there's also a lot of good reason to see that there are good things. And by the way, part of the Stoic view of life is anger and unhappiness is not going to help us in any way, right? Mm -hmm. And I got back lots of very positive feedback. And then I got one response 
that kept escalating and escalating and escalating in anger, like really in anger, to the point that most of my followers didn't see a few direct messages afterwards where I was being insulted heavily for even bringing up the topic of finding wisdom or equilibrium or happiness at times like this. So I want to start with the topic of anger. Do we blame people for feeling angry when things are so uncertain, when things, specifically in the U.S. where this follower was from, where people are so polarized in terms of, I just hate the other guy. It doesn't matter what the other guy is. It's just like, you know, if you're not like me, I hate you, basically. Well, it's certainly very topical at the moment. Anger has always been an important part of life. And this for the Stoics, it was very, very topical you know, over 2,000 years ago. But uh, there's renewed interest in it today. You know, there's a, kind of a lot more interest in it, partly because we see so much anger online today with trolling and flaming on the internet. And also politics today seems to be increasingly divisive. And uh, I'm sure these things go through cycles in history, but certainly at the moment, compared to recent decades, it seems to be escalating, doesn't it? And Stoicism has a lot to say about that. The Stoics actually talk about anger probably more than any other emotion. And we're very lucky that we have, although we have maybe less than 1% of the ancient texts written by the Stoics surviving today, we only have a a small sample. We have an entire book by Seneca called On Anger, all about the Stoic therapy for anger. And the things he says in it are remarkable because they're they're very, very relevant today. So you asked me, do we blame people for anger? And I I think actually that raises another big question, which is what does it really mean to blame anybody for anything? (laughs) Okay, let's start there. That's a good place to start. To what extent can we hold people responsible for things? I think that's a puzzle because certainly even when people seem to be doing things voluntarily, and they are in a sense doing things voluntarily, they're often not entirely aware of the consequences or the implications of their actions. And in therapy, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, we're very aware of this because we talk all day long in our sessions to clients about their blind spots. We all have little slices of ignorance that prevent us from really understanding fully what it is we're doing. And Socrates said no man does evil voluntarily because he thought that uh, no man does the wrong thing knowingly, fundamentally. Yeah, everyone believes they're doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. and sometimes that, might, that seems like most things Socrates says. One of the good things about Socrates is that he says these things that seem outrageous to many people. And uh, they're controversial, but everyone remembers him. Uh, the things because that he they said. are. <laughs> because there's some truth in what he said. And I, I remember I spoke recently to the U.S. Marine Corps from the U.S. Marine Corps University. And I thought, well, I get away with saying that no man does evil willingly. But, uh, you know, I said to them, think about the great dictators throughout history, Stalin and Hitler and all of these people that committed atrocious genocides and things like that. Did they not believe wholeheartedly that they were, in a sense, in their own mind, justified in what they were doing? They really believed. That's what makes them so dangerous, that they completely believed that they were in the right and wholly justified in what they were doing. And so everybody can go, well, yeah, that's true. Like People that do horrendous things 
believe in what they're doing. That's part of what makes them dangerous. And so to what extent can we blame people for their own ignorance, their own blind spots? The Stoics think that we need to view it more like a kind of disability in a way. They literally say that. Marcus Aurelius says that moral blindness is a more severe disability than physical blindness. Oh, I love this. It's a shocking thing to say. Absolutely. (laughs) Moral blindness is a more severe disability. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that is such an interesting way of describing it. But then the way we deal with disability is Mm. we sort of acknowledge it, respect it, and help with it. That's not what we do with moral blindness, do we? No, we punish people and we try to take revenge against them. But the criminal justice system has several different rationales for punishing people. One is just retribution. They deserve to be punished as the idea. It goes back to primitive ideas of revenge, in a sense. And the other one is that it acts as a deterrent. And the other one is that we punish people in some ways to try and change their behavior or rehabilitate them to teach them not to do it again. And so the Stoics might say, well, maybe putting someone in prison or finding them or punishing them in some way might be a, a way of shaping their behavior. Maybe it would deter people from doing things that we don't want them to do. But the idea of just punishing people for revenge, for retribution, because they just deserve it if they do bad things, the Stoics didn't really buy into that. They thought that was an irrational way of thinking. And so a a criminal justice system under the Stoic philosophers would be much more focused on reforming and rehabilitating offenders, for example. Can you imagine a society like that? I guess it would place demands on the economy, but you know, perhaps it would be a more moral society if we tried to reform criminals rather than just punishing them for the sake of vengeance or retribution. But in, in terms of anger, the Stoics would say, to come back to your original point, should we blame them? This, I think the Stoics would say, well, fundamentally, we need to try and understand angry people so that we can deal with them better. And insofar as it's possible to do so, we should try and enlighten them. And if we can't, we should learn to live with them or ignore them. Marcus says that once. He says, either educate them or ignore them. They see it as a, hmm. helpful to think of it in terms of a split, but don't kind of get trapped in the middle. That's a very interesting answer to the situation I was put in. So in a way, if you make your point of view understood a couple of times, and by the way, I could be right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Maybe I am insensitive to try and spread happiness in times of hardships, right? But if that's the case, then ignore them, right? If it doesn't make any difference, then just basically say, okay, you know what, I tried, and it doesn't matter if one person is not in agreement, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of other Stoic themes that we're touching on here. And one is the Stoics, in a sense, fundamentally, the Stoics just want to be as realistic as possible about this. I would say that's really the core of their philosophy. Now, what are the ways in which we're unrealistic about life? Well, one of them, and they were way ahead of the times in, in seeing this, One of them is that we know in modern cognitive psychology that people engage in selective thinking. And uh, so people will take a piece of information and they'll ignore other pieces of information. The more angry people are, the more selective their thinking becomes. Now in the core, at least in the UK, when you you swear an oath, uh, when you're testifying, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The whole truth 
because leaving stuff out is almost as bad as telling a lie. We call that a lie of omission. And that's the sneakiest kind of lie to get away with. The one where we say something that's true, but we leave other stuff out that would change its significance. But we do that all the time to ourselves. Like in modern cognitive therapy and modern psychology, we know that people are always committing lies of omission. They're always engaged in what we call selective thinking. So when you're angry with somebody, you look for reasons to be even more angry with them and you ignore reasons to forgive or understand them or to view them in a more rounded or or balanced way. So the Stoics want us to be realistic by learning to look at the bigger picture. And one way of doing that when you're engaging with somebody that's angry with you or they have a strong opinion about you is just to think, well, that's one person out of billions. So when we're struggling and we're getting upset because someone's trolling us, we tend to naturally, because it's the way our brain works, we'll become quite focused on that one person. And we'll kind of feel hurt maybe by the things that they say or are irritated by them. But if we can broaden our perspective and imagine that's just one person's voice and among the voices of billions of other people, most of whom have a variety of different perspectives on what we've said and many of whom would be relatively indifferent to it. I would think they see it in a more positive light, then the significance of that one person's view becomes, at the very least, diluted. I love the way you call it. You call it the lies of omission. And so it's interesting that because we don't allow our brains to see the full pictures and and our brains, by definition, are trained to look for what is wrong, then by definition, you're sort of lying to yourself. That's an actual and very interesting way of looking at it. Lying to yourself in the direction that makes you unhappy, that makes you miss the truth, that makes you make worse decisions. And in a way, I would call that criminal because basically you're literally not saying the whole truth to the one that matters most to you, which is you. Yeah, we do it a lot. And I can give you a couple of other really simple examples. One of my favorite ones is when people have clinical depression. If someone with clinical depression performed in a play or they wrote a book or they did anything where they get reviews, let's say, they maybe get 100 reviews and maybe 99 of them are quite positive or even really positive. But if they've got one bad review because they have a schematic cognitive bias towards negativity, like when they're depressed because their brain is in a depressed mode of functioning, if you like, they'll tend to focus on the one bad review and think about that, ruminate about it, and kind of ignore the other 99 positive reviews. Whereas most people, if they're in a happier, relaxed, a normal, functional, balanced state of mind, would see the bad one, but they'd also see all the other positive ones. And it's like the depressed person has selective thinking, having selective hearing. They only hear the bad stuff. They only see the bad stuff. It's a kind of confirmation bias in a way. They already believe that things are bad and awful and depressing. And so they're on the lookout for more evidence to confirm their existing state of mind. And then, you know, we were talking about anger. Angry people do the same thing. They look for reasons to maintain their anger. Anger looks for ways to get even more angry. That's so clear in today's environment. I want to continue on that line of thinking, but I actually realized because I am a huge student, I'm not as good as I should be of stoicism. We may have forgotten that some of my listeners don't even know what stoicism is. So do we want to have a quick definition? Yeah. 
We'll give them a little primer in Stoicism. So I guess I'll first of all, we'll say where it comes from. So it's an ancient Greek philosophy. It was founded in 300 BC by a Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Satyrum. Mm -hmm. And then it was very much influenced by the earlier philosophy of Socrates. It flourished in Athens. And then it moved to Rome. The, The Romans became particularly interested in Stoicism. And there are several Romans whose writings are famous today. Seneca, Epictetus. And Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor, and he's the last of the famous Stoics of antiquity. So between Zeno the founder and Marcus Aurelius, the last famous Stoic, it's a period of about five centuries. It's quite a long time during which Stoicism flourished. It influenced early Christianity, and uh, it's also one of the major influences on modern cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, which is the type of psychotherapy that I do, and hence the connection so that's where it came from and some of the names that people might recognize. If anyone's seen the movie Gladiator, for example, it's going back a little bit now, but I'm, a lot of people have seen that. Marcus Aurelius is one of the main characters in the first act of the movie Gladiator. He's played by Richard Harris. So people might have come across some of these people. And uh, what did the Stoics believe? The Stoics believed that the goal of life was moral wisdom or virtue and they believed in a a kind of strict moral doctrine that says the only truly important thing in life is moral wisdom or virtue, arity we call it, and that everything else, the external things, as they put it, that people normally pursue, like health, wealth, and reputation, have some value, but they're relatively insignificant compared to having the character and wisdom to know how to make good use of them. And so the main thing about that is it's an ethic, it's a moral philosophy, but it immediately has psychological implications. Because if you can imagine the ideal Stoic is somebody who's mainly concerned about their own wisdom, their own character, and can take wealth or leave it, like can take praise or blame equally, like in the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, if they can rise above circumstances, they're going to be quite psychologically resilient, quite emotionally resilient, because if they go bankrupt or if people ridicule them or if they have to endure ill health or something like that, it's not going to be the end of the the world to them psychologically or emotionally, because what's more important to them is the way that they cope with the deprivation of these things rather than the fact that they've lost them. And so Stoicism is known for being associated with this kind of psychological or emotional resilience. And that's partly why I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's gone through a resurgence in popularity today, people say, as a way of coping with stress. And just to kind of touch on the topicality of that, Stoicism was growing in popularity for several decades. And then something happened that everyone's heard of. The pandemic happened and it changed our lives forever in a way and that changed the whole of our society. And suddenly the Stoics became even more popular than they were before. Sales of Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius' books went through the roof, according to the the data from the, the publishers. And that's because they offer us ways of coping with things like pandemics. Socrates lived through one of the most famous epidemics or pandemics of antiquity, the plague of Athens, And Marcus Aurelius lived through another one called the Antonine Plague. So Marcus Aurelius' book, The Meditations, it's called, in a sense, maybe at a stretch, could be seen almost as a psychological coping manual for developing resilience and dealing 
with a, a pandemic. He wrote it in the middle of a pandemic. Let's follow through on this. So in the dialogue between Plato and Socrates, there is that mention of sort of the four thoughts of wisdom of how to deal with hardship and how to deal with a pandemic at the situation we're in today. And I think this is so timely because when you hear them, you go like, yeah, that makes sense. But then when you leave yourself to your own human tendencies, you'll go like, no, 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 I want to be angry. I want to to judge that the outcome of this is going to be very hurtful for me, the opposite of those four wisdoms. So can we talk about those quickly? I mean, the idea of not knowing, the idea that nothing is to be gained, and so on and so forth. I think, I'm trying to think of the passage you're talking about. I think you, maybe you're talking about this part of uh, Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic, that's correct. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a part, and it's a strange, it's a, there's so much to say about Socrates, so stop me if, if I go on too much. It's one of my favourite subjects. Go on forever, a, I love this. Such a complex <laughs> character. Um, so this is an amazing conversation. In Plato's Republic, Socrates is actually talking about the Greek tragedies, and he's talking to Glaucon, who's Plato's elder brother, if I remember rightly. And Socrates says, um, I don't think the, the Greek tragedies are really that good in a sense. And Glaucon's kind of shocked by this because this is uh, the high point of Greek uh, art. And uh, he says, well, why not? And Socrates says, well, the, the characters in them are terrible role models. The tragedy is all kind of self-inflicted in a sense. They don't have to respond in the way that they do with all the histrionics and stuff. It's very entertaining. And we can compare this to movies and dramas today. You know, the most interesting, most exciting movies that we watch are often full of characters that are overreacting <laughs> to adversity and, and freaking yeah. out and stuff. And so Socrates is very insightful in, in pointing this out. He said, I know it's entertaining, but, it, you know, these are all bad role models in a sense. This isn't how a wise man or woman would respond to these situations. And I guess it would be a boring story in a way. Like if we saw how a wise man would respond to some of these tragic <laughs> situations, agree. because they, they'd be pretty, <laughs> they'd be pretty chill about it. Yeah. You know, Oedipus finds out that he's accidentally slept with his own mother in Oedipus Rex, and he goes crazy and blinds himself. You know, for example. But uh, you know, a wise man might say, "Well, I didn't. You know, I was. I didn't know what I was doing. It was unintentional. So I get all upset about it." Mm. So Socrates is debating this, and Glaucon says to him, "Okay, smarty pants." What, in that case, does a wise man or woman do in the face of adversity? And Socrates says, well, there's four things that he tells himself. And uh, he says, well, what are they? And uh, the first thing Socrates says is that uh, a wise man or woman in the face of a crisis or in the face of adversity says there's no way to be certain whether the events that befall him will turn out to be good or bad for us in the grand scheme of things. And what he's thinking of there is that actually in the Greek tragedies, there are many reversals of fortune as there are in life. So in today's language, someone might, their girlfriend might dump them, or boyfriend might break up with them. And that might seem like a really terrible, tragic thing that they're really upset about. But when they look back on it 10 years later, they might think, but I went on to meet somebody much better. So, you know, maybe it's a blessing in disguise, as we say. Or somebody might lose their job. As a therapist, I've had this conversation actually many, many times where people have lost a job and they've been laid off from a job and it seems like a terrible setback to them. 
But then maybe a few months later, they started their own business or they found another job and they're moving on in life and, and actually much happier. So again, it can be a blessing in disguise. And equally, when people seem to have encountered good fortune, you hear all these stories about people that win the lottery and then they blow it all on drugs and you know lose all their friends and end up in a terrible place. So what seems like good luck? Promotions at work that people get very excited about often end up making them miserable, right? Yeah. Because people are often promoted beyond their competence or they end up having to work longer hours and it damages their family life. Great, I've got this promotion. Yeah, I've got much more responsibility now. Then six months later, they end up getting divorced why? because they're spending all their time at work and it's damaging their family. So what seems like a blessing can often turn out to be a curse. And what seems like a curse can turn out to be a blessing. And Socrates says, well, number one, the wise person knows this. And so they take a step back and say, we don't really know how bad this is yet. Maybe it could have been worse. Maybe in the long term, it will benefit us. Now, with reference to the current pandemic, there are many ways in which we can look at it like that. But one of them actually is quite obvious. It might seem a little bit crass at first to, to question how serious the pandemic is. And as an aside, by the way, I will say that as someone who's worked to some extent in public health over the years in an evidence-based, albeit psychological, therapy, I really wish more people would look at the peer-reviewed scientific totally. uh, journals rather than listening to politicians and totally. social media. But there's too much political propaganda and not enough hard science in the, in the discussion about something as serious as this. And I think generally people, looking back, have underestimated how severe the pandemic was. Nevertheless, one thing I'll say with confidence is that it could have been far, far, far worse. This virus, although overall it's going to be the cause of many, many deaths, has a relatively low infection fatality rate compared to something like Ebola. So we got off relatively lightly, in a sense. Epidemiologists and, and people like Bill Gates said far you know, a long time ago, before this even started, that we better hope that when the pandemic comes, it's not a virus like Ebola. So in a sense, we were lucky that it's a virus with a low. Terrible as it is, it could have been far worse. And maybe this gives us an opportunity to think about the strategies that we need to have in place and to adapt as a society, so that when a much nastier virus comes down the pipe in the future, maybe a, as a society or as a global community, we're more prepared yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. So th there is that positive aspect to it. It could have been far worse, and it, it allows us to prepare much better for the inevitability that other viruses are going to cause pandemics in the, in the future. It's bound to happen. Eventually, these things happen periodically through history. So first thing is Socrates says, listen, we don't really know how things are going to pan out in the long term, so it's better to suspend judgment in the face of a crisis. It may actually work in your favour. I'll give you another little example of that that seems like a classic Socratic paradox. Socrates fought as a soldier in the Peloponnesian War, and the Athenians lost, and the Spartans won. And the Spartans put this military junta in charge of Athens, and when they did that, they rounded up and executed all the Democrats and immigrants in order to seize their wealth. And uh, Socrates said, listen, all the people that were previously complaining about how poor they were or how obscure they were, they weren't famous or influential in society, they're the only ones left alive. So what seemed like a big disadvantage to them at the time, their poverty and their lack of status, has actually saved their skin and because all the wealthy 
and influential Athenians were rounded up and uh, strangled to death, yeah. thrown in a pit. Yeah. So he said, you know, there are many reversals of fortune in life as there are in the, the Greek tragedies. So be careful what you wish for, in a sense. So we should... We don't know for sure where things are going to lead us, and the wise person bears that in mind. So the second thing he says is that in the face of adversity, a wise person tells himself that they gain nothing by taking adversity hard, by grieving excessively about it. We simply add another level of pain to the existing pain of the misfortune itself. It already hurts when something bad happens, Socrates is saying. So why make it hurt even more? by crying in your beer about it and ruminating about it and complaining excessively about it. That's just another whole level of suffering that's now being voluntarily added to the mix. And so a wise person just doesn't bother doing that because they don't see it as necessary. Some people will say that, you know, keeping it in as well is not good for you. So, you know, you're supposed to express your emotions and you're supposed to let it out and you're supposed to confine in someone and you're supposed to complain about it and blah, rah, 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 rah. Is there no benefit in that? I think there's some benefit if we complain rationally. The idea actually venting emotions is healthy hasn't fared well in modern psychotherapy or modern psychological research. When people express painful emotions repeatedly, rather than getting them out of their system, they actually just seem to strengthen them. Mm-hmm. So the, the ancient Stoics, that's how they looked at it, and they were right about that. The people that were influenced by Freud in the first part of the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, thought that emotions were kind of bottled up and it was better to kind of let them out as if you purge yourself self of them, get them out of your system. But that's not really how emotion works. Emotion is more like a habit. Yeah. Someone who cries a lot doesn't get rid of their tendency to cry. They just strengthen their tendency to cry. So it can be helpful to, you know, express complaints to other people in an appropriate way so we can get their help and get their support. And sometimes in the short term, it can be beneficial to express emotions. But if we're doing it repeatedly and to excess, then we simply tend to amplify our suffering and that can become a vicious cycle. At some point, we have to stop crying and begin to move on. I think that's what Socrates and the Stoics would say. Yeah, let me repeat this because I think this is a very important point for a lot of people. So in my personal story, I lost my wonderful son. And of course, every now and then I will remember my son and I will feel like crying. And when that comes up, I will cry. It's absolutely okay to express that. But what you're saying here is that when we are repeatedly going through a certain path, which is, for example, the path of complaining, what we're doing is we're strengthening the neural circuitry in our brains that is capable of complaining. So we become better and better at complaining. If I constantly regenerate the grief in my heart and mind so that I cry about the loss of Ali, then by definition, I'm just making myself more and more and more miserable. So it's an interesting paradox here because on one side, We want to express that emotion and embrace it when it comes up, but we don't want to give it the power, the strength, the energy to become who we are by repeatedly investing in it and repeatedly saying it's good to cry, it's good to complain, it's good to grieve. Those are not emotions that we should encourage. We should embrace them when they happen, but we shouldn't give them the energy. Absolutely. And, you know, one very simple way of putting it is, There's a distinction between healthy, natural grief and a line which 
we have to be careful not to cross where it turns into clinical depression. So what's the difference between grief and clinical depression? Well, one simple way of putting it is that when it's carried to excess or when it continues for far too long, then potentially it becomes something more pathological yeah. and, and unhealthy. And, and there may even be pain that continues to remain with us, but without necessarily dominating our lives. And that's different from somebody simply becoming immersed in grief and allowing it to dominate excessively. So there's a natural process of mourning that the Stoics would acknowledge that we should go through. But Socrates wants to say really that we shouldn't allow ourselves to amplify these feelings or to perpetuate them longer than would be natural for us. We, we should accept there's a kind of a limit to what's healthy. Mm. Can I take this a step further? And, you know, I think everyone who knows me knows I'm a very, very, very strong supporter of Black Lives Matter, for example, where the current, if you want, release of emotion is this has gone on for too long. This is unacceptable. This is not the right way for things to be. But in the initial burst of this, you saw behavior that basically was not aligned with moral wisdom, if you want, to break into stores or to destroy yeah. uh, other people's property and so on and so forth. So where is the line? How do we take that emotion of anger and turn it into something that actually makes a difference rather than just give it more and more energy and power? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Stoics are very good at dealing with us. You know, I think we learn from history that anger is often counterproductive. There's nothing that anger can really do for us, in my view, that can't be done better through love and compassion and reason. Oh, I love that. Go on, go on. Anger, I think, is understandable. But I'll tell you the, way, the best way, I think, to look at anger. The Stoics said anger is temporary madness, and they're right about that. You know, there's a wealth of contemporary psychological research that shows that strong emotions like anger tend to impair our judgment in many, many identifiable ways. So when people are very angry, they tend to leap prematurely to conclusions about things, such as what other people's motives are. They suddenly become an expert on what other people are, are thinking and what other people intend. They, they're more likely to engage in stereotypes and overgeneralizations. There's some research that shows that when people are angry, they're more prone to racism and anti-Semitism and other similar kinds of cultural or political prejudices as a consequence of that. Angry people tend to underestimate risk as well, which would be something pretty unhelpful in the middle of a pandemic when it's, we're facing dangers that we need to adapt to as a society. So anger is temporary madness. Anger makes us stupid. It makes us poor problem solving. And the really difficult thing about that is that anger is primarily an interpersonal emotion. We mainly get angry with other people. Even worse than that, although we, we do get angry with political opponents, the people that we mostly get angry with most of the time under normal circumstances are the people we care most about. People get angry with their husbands and wives and their children and their colleagues at work more than anyone else, uh, the people that are closest to them. And uh, that is potentially quite dangerous and disruptive to relationships. One of the most complex things that we have to deal with are other human beings. You know, it's not like just like building a house or something like that, bricks and mortar. People are complicated. And so you have to have your wits about you and all of your reasoning skills when you deal with other human beings. You have to be thinking clearly. And anger just gets in the way of that. It clouds our judgment. And it makes us really bad at problem solving and particularly bad at interpersonal or social problem solving. 
but it's such an uncontrollable emotion. It's, it's raging out of us. So how, how can people keep it under control? I think there are many ways that people can learn to deal with anger. There are many, many things that we can do. Some of them are behavioral, some of them are emotional, some of them are cognitive. But for example, there's some debate about this technique, but I still believe in an old technique called the timeout strategy that says in many situations when you're becoming angry, oh, and actually the, the Stoics mentioned doing this, and so do other ancient philosophers. Plato reputedly did this. So an old, old technique is that when you're getting angry, it's a good idea sometimes to take a break and step out of the situation if it's appropriate to do so, and then wait until you've calmed down, and then think about how you're going to respond. Because sometimes when you're angry, you just say and do things that escalate the situation and make it worse. So, you know, if you have a real problem with anger, sometimes it can be helpful to learn to take a breath, count to 10 or whatever, go away, sleep on it, come back and deal with it when you've calmed down. And, uh, you know, other techniques that can help us to cope with anger are just really trying to identify what the underlying thoughts are, what we're saying to ourselves when we're angry, and are the things that we're saying to ourselves actually true? Are they rational? Are we committing lies of omission? Are we stereotyping or engaging in overgeneralizations or acting as if we've got certainty about what other people are thinking when in fact we've got uncertainty about what their motives are? So I think just reflection, really understanding the, the limitations of our perspective, noticing the way that anger biases or judgment, all these things can create what we call now cognitive distancing, which is the ability to step back from our thoughts and not get swept away by them. It's a subtle idea, but we know it's a very powerful one in therapy. So learning to view our thoughts is just one among many ways of looking at a particular situation helps to moderate the emotional effect that they have on us. Like, for example, when people are really caught up in anger, they'll say, this is terrible, it's unjust, this guy's an idiot, it's all a conspiracy, da 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 but they act as if that's the only way that you could conceivably view the situation. When in fact, maybe they're right, but there are other potential ways of interpreting <laughs> facts sometimes, yeah. right? Other, other opinions are available. And somebody who's more relaxed about it will say, I think this guy's probably lying to me, but maybe I've just misunderstood him, or maybe he didn't mean it to come across that way. You know, if somebody's laid back and chilled like you are, my friend, you know, they might say, well, I can see other ways of looking <laughs> at it. Absolutely. And there is always another way to look at it. Yeah. And it's hard to get as angry as long as you keep an open mind and think there's more than one way to understand the situation. I don't know for sure that this is all an evil conspiracy and that guy was definitely out to get me. He might be, but there might be another possible interpretation of what just went down. And so the person who can juggle several perspectives and think it could be this, or it might also be that, you know, I'll never know for sure. They're unlikely to get as angry. Right? Because this flexibility, this ability to entertain multiple perspectives tends to give us cognitive distance or it weakens the emotional impact yeah. of our views. When people are angry, they get fused with their opinions as if there's only one conceivable way of looking at the situation. Yeah. And even if they happen to be right about it, still that excessive certainty is quite dangerous because it can lead them to become rigidly locked in to a kind of tunnel vision and yeah. their emotions can get quite out of control when they do that. Yeah. So the, the ability to kind of be flexible and to some extent 
keep an open mind can make us less a victim or less a enslaved by our, our strong emotions. And that can be helpful. Yeah, I find that even that cognitive distance, that belief inside us that there could be another opinion just triggers that cognitive distance because yeah. by definition, you feel the anger and then you say, before I explode here, is there something I'm missing, right? Is there another way to look at it? And in that process of looking for other ways to look at it, even if you eventually end up you know, finding that your view was reasonably correct, you've taken that distance that took away the anger so that your engagement now becomes rational. So let's go back to the four, uh, to, to the four ideas. We only got to number two. I think we were yeah, going we up to number got three. To number two. So no, not knowing, not knowing was one. The first one, yeah, we don't know if it's really good or bad in the grand scheme of things. It might, yeah. What seems bad might turn out to benefit us and what seems good might turn out to harm us. And then we shouldn't get overly upset about things if we don't have to because that just causes us even more pain. It's uh, adding more fuel on the fire and amplifying our pain. And the third one is that Socrates says, look, no individual thing that happens to us is actually all important. He doesn't phrase this one very clearly, but I think this is what he means. It's this idea again of the Stoics looking at the whole picture. Normally, you can pay attention to several things at once, right? So psychologists have been interested in this for a long time. So you can drive your car and you can have a conversation with uh, someone in the back seat. You can be listening to the radio and you might be thinking about what you're going to have for dinner when you get home. So the way I like to put it is we can walk and chew gum normally, like we can do several things <laughs> at once, right? Luckily. But when you're angry or anxious, you can't. You do fewer things at once. Your scope of awareness becomes narrowed down to a, a smaller number of things that you can handle at one time. And uh, we kind of put the negative things under a magnifying glass more and more and forget about the, the bigger picture. So Socrates is saying, listen, it may be somebody might come up to you and, and insult you, or somebody online might do that. Let's say it happens all the time. And if you forget about everything else and just put that under a magnifying glass, it could become really upsetting. But if you broaden your perspective and think, but there's lots of other people that have said nice things to me. And, uh, you know, there's lots of people in the world that kind of indifferent to me and there's lots of other things going on in life. And maybe even somebody that insults you who says nice things to you in the past, but we forget about that when we're angry. So Socrates would say, when you look at the bigger picture, these individual events, they may still seem important, but they're necessarily less important because they're only one piece of the jigsaw and there's a much bigger picture that's more complex yeah. and more nuanced that, that surrounds them. So in a sense, he's saying no matter how catastrophic it might seem, none of these individual events is more than a single piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. None of them is all important. None of them is the whole picture. And it's useful to remember that. Again, you'd be committing a lie of omission. You'd be taking things out of context if you just look at that one yeah. piece of the jigsaw puzzle and forget about the rest of the yeah. picture that surrounds it. And also, when we look at one little thing, like uh, one little insult or one little setback, we have, in a sense, more simplistic, monolithic emotions. And we're better than that. We're more grown up than that. Like when we look at a situation in a more rounded way, we're capable of having layers upon layers of emotion, more complex, more nuanced, multifaceted emotional responses. I, you know, if you think in your relaxed state about how you feel about one of your best friends, 
you probably think you've got a bunch of complex feelings about them. You remember things that you've gone through with them over the years and you can't really sum it all up as just, you know, like one single positive or negative is probably a, a complex tapestry of feelings. Yeah. And that, that's reality, right? Reality is complex. So we should have this nuanced and balanced emotional. It should set alarm bells ringing. Like when we just have one single burning monolithic feeling about something because we're probably oversimplifying it dramatically. So number three, as Socrates says, no individual event in isolation is actually the whole picture. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please play your part and share this to as many people as you can. Rate this podcast to five stars on Apple Podcasts, share it on social media, and tell others what you learn. The wisdom that my guests share here and the inspiration is truly worthy of reaching millions. And the only one that can help us do that is you. Find me on social media and let me know what you think and how we're doing. I am Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, mgaudet on Twitter, and mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. I know you have a million and a half things that you do on daily basis, but remember, there is always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.